Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottoms. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to today's podcast. You know, Aggie Merge focuses on changing paradigms. When you change paradigms, you change how you think about things. In agriculture, we've had to change how we think about a lot of things. Things like tillage, soil biology, monocropping, soil health, fertilizer and how we use it. The list goes on and on. Mark Twain once said, What gets us into trouble is not what we don't know. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. On today's podcast, Dr. Richard Mulvaney joins us to help us change how we think about nitrogen. A native Illinoisan with a long-standing interest in soil science and agronomy, Richard Mulvaney has been a faculty member at the University of Illinois since 1983. He teaches introductory soils and courses in soil fertility. Dr. Mulvaney has been active in research concerning nitrogen transformations in soils, the long-term environmental effects of nitrogen fertilization, and the use of soil nitrogen testing to optimize fertilizer nitrogen management. You know, he was one of our speakers on the Ag Emerge stage last January, and he delivered some paradigm change thinking that really struck home. So welcome, Dr. Mulvaney. Thanks for joining us today. As we get started here, we like to talk about your journey that kind of has brought you along this path of some of the research that you're doing and what sort of epiphanies that you've had along the way, but you have one paper in particular, the Browning of the Green Revolution, that I read early on, and I wish you could see the copy that I have of it. It's all marked up, lots of notes, things that I wanted to pay attention to and learn from. So, but could you tell us a little bit about how that, how that journey began and and what made you really explore that, uh, that research? Sure. Um, the, 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 the transition that occurred in, in my case uh, was one from believing and abiding by the conventional approach to soil fertility management. Uh, I had been taught the standard line of using NPK fertilizers, and uh, we began to find some anomalies, especially in regard to nitrogen management. I guess the first significant development that led us toward the browning of the Green Revolution was the finding that the soil is the main source of supplying nitrogen for crop uptake, not the fertilizer. We had come to see that in our own work and also in the literature regarding the uptake of isotopically labeled nitrogen fertilizer. And so it's a recurring pattern. It shows up on all kinds of soils, and it doesn't seem to fit very well with the standard practice that was at least standard in those days. I'm talking about the 1980s and 90s, where we would apply 1.2 pounds of nitrogen per pound per bushel of expected corn yield. And that approach to making nitrogen recommendations automatically allocates the highest nitrogen rates to the most productive soils. But it didn't seem to make a lot of sense, especially once we came to realize that the soil was the main source of supply and that good soils supplied more than poor soils. 
So we came up with a soil nitrogen test that came to be called the Illinois Soil Nitrogen Test, and it's still being used today. And then leading us toward this browning of the Green Revolution, my colleague Saeed Khan was wondering about the moral plots. And what happened was that we began to run the Illinois soil nitrogen test on some soil samples from the moral plots under different management systems. And in particular, we found that the the north end of the moral plots, which is under continuous corn and has been since 1876, that area, at least some parts of that area, get treated with end fertilizer every year corn is grown. That's been the case since 1955. And so there's a, there's a lot of nitrogen going into those plots. And then on the south end of the moral plots, we have corn, oats, and hay in a three-year rotation. And the input of nitrogen for those plots, at least the fertilized ones, would be on the order of one-third of what it would be for the continuous corn plots. So the corn oats hay gets nitrogen every third year for corn, as opposed to the continuous corn plots that get fertilized every year. So what Saeed noticed was that the, the corn didn't seem to be looking as good on the north end as on the south end. We had soil samples, and we ran those samples for the ISNT, the Illinois Soil End Test, and lo and behold, we were getting lower values on the north end and higher values on the south. Well, that that raised uh, some issues because the textbooks had told us, and I hate, hate to say it, but there was a time when I actually taught this myself. That time isn't now. Um, the textbooks would say that nitrogen, fertilizer nitrogen builds soil organic matter. But the north end of the moral plots where nitrogen was being applied every year had lower organic matter and a lower ISNT value than the south end where nitrogen was applied every third year. Something was upside down. So all that extra nitrogen coming into the continuous corn rotation had not built up the soil, but in fact, the soil was lower in organic matter. There's the disconnect. And there's where the story begins that culminates in the browning of the Green Revolution. Fascinating. Well, what, what I, yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> Sorry to take the words out of your mouth, Kim. <laughs> uh, but I... Uh, I'm just amazed by the Dr. Mulvaney that you're able to, after you know being being taught in, in one paradigm and 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 teaching others within that paradigm to be able to look at the numbers and realize that wait a minute, the numbers are telling us a different story. You know, <laughs> rarely are the numbers off; it's the interpretation of the numbers that can that can be incorrect. Is that is that a fair you way are, to say that? You are so right, Monty. Uh, we have found that pattern over and over again. And we have found many examples in the literature where the data would be misinterpreted. Uh, and it seems that it's not so uncommon for papers to be written with a certain perspective. And then when the data go don't conform to it, still the perspective has to be written. And that, that happens over and over again. That's called a paradigm, isn't it? 
it is our, our predisposition, our filter to take the information, the raw numbers, which are just numbers, and interpret it into what we perceive the world to be. So correct. Just, and and it, and you know it got so bad that it I can recall Saeed making the comment many times that he had given up uh, when we would when we would go through papers from the literature, he had given up reading the papers at the outset. He didn't want to be biased. He, he would just look at the data. Hmm. Very insightful. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So I remember the first time I got to hear you speak, uh, you and Saeed Khan were both invited to the National No-Tillage Conference. And uh, I got to go to your, you had a couple breakouts, I believe, and, and Saeed had a uh, thing on the main stage we're in a ballroom I, I think it was in maybe Cincinnati Ohio or or something yeah. but I remember I remember sitting there in the ballroom and Saeed Khan was going through all things potassium and talking yeah. about that it's just a complete waste of time to be applying potassium and my, my mouth was about hitting the floor and I could swear there was producers heckling him from the back and walking out if they would have had tomatoes in their hands I'm afraid that he would have been pummeled so, <laughs> you know, it's when you when you consider producers spending, you know, 30, 50, 100 dollars a year in fertilizer. And he's done this for 40 years of his production career. And all of a sudden, you know, some some hot shot researchers like you guys get up there and say, hey, you've just wasted, you know, millions of dollars in your farming career. <laughs> Um, people get rubbed a little wrong way. I bet you've gotten some pushback on this. Well, we have, as a matter of fact. And I can recall another case where it was over that potassium paradox message that Saeed got a call from a fertilizer dealer in southern Illinois who was really uh, much taken aback by that message. And he told Saeed, well, potassium potash is it's one of the best fertilizers that we sell <laughs> and and uh and to come out and say it's not doing any good is amazing and yet what's the case there well from their standpoint it it was a real good fertilizer to to sell oh sure but in yeah. terms of buying it and expecting a profitable yield response that's a different matter See, now there you go, getting into those little fine details like that. So yes. <laughs> in our business, we found that if potassium is needed, it's typically in uh, uh, indeterminate plants when they're switching from vegetative growth to reproductive growth. And there's maybe a salinity issue or there's a water, overwater, underwatering issue, or there's a heat stress event or a cold stress event. Something like that. We typically use it as a trigger to help with the fruiting, but not okay. for supplementation, you know. And we found that if you try to supplement large volumes of it, you're better off improving the soil function to yes. naturally mineralize it from bulk soil material than you ever are trying to over apply it to get a because it's just going to go back to homeostasis. So we, we found it. That's that's what we found in, in the years that we've been working with potassium fertilization. And plus the form is important too. You know, one of the, yes. sorry, we, we need to stay on the nitrogen topic here, but while we're on potassium, you know, the potassium chloride, that chloride is doing some uh, nasty things in the soil uh, in uh, as a biocide. So yeah, you're very right. I totally agree. 
yeah. So well, we can talk about ammonia's biocide too. I mean, if you want, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and anyway, I digress a little bit, but I, I wanted to back up a little bit about you mentioned uh, you and Saeed were looking at the marl plots, you know, and just opened your eyes and like all of a sudden, huh, why is this corn oats alfalfa rotation looking better than continuous corn, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of started it. And I just happened to think back when you were talking in 2012, we had a little, little problem in Illinois. Uh, there was a little drought. Yes, we did. And, and yes. Champaign-Urbana over to Bloomington was just the epicenter of that drought. Is that when you went into that rotation crop and you're looking at these fields, and I imagine you walk by it all the time, was there a significant difference in, in yields on, on the rotation ground that year versus the continuous? Uh, no doubt there was. Uh, I have to admit, I wasn't watching closely the moral plots in 2012. Sure. I had other things going on. Okay. But in in my presentation um, at Monterey, I, I yeah. showed a slide from 2006, I believe it was, uh-huh. and it clearly showed much better growth and and it translated into higher yield for corn because 2006 was another dry summer. And so no doubt 2012 would have been the same way. No doubt about it. So, you know, you mentioned the isotopic research. So that's where we have uh, a, a nitrogen with a, a, a 15 uh, neutron correct uh, nitrogen where you can radioisotope until Okay, if we have N15 that's put out, uh, we know that we did that more than likely, and N12 would be coming from the soil. Um, when, as you, so, oh, just, a, just a point of clarif- just a point of clarification about N15. Uh, okay. the, the normal isotope of nitrogen has a mass number of 14, and 14, N15 has one extra neutron. That's the okay. difference. Okay, very good. And so See? it's not it's not radioactive. Okay. So it's it's got an extra neutron in there and you can isolate the the man applied uh nitrogen versus the naturally yeah. occurring nitrogen. So Correct. when you go go into the plots where you're applying the the N15 as the rate of N15 increases uh what happens to the ratio of N15 N14 within the plant? Yeah, so as uh, as you'd expect, when the fertilizer N rate, using labeled N, is increased, you end up with more N15 in the plant and in the grain. It, it just stands to reason. If the plant has a greater supply, it takes up more from the fertilizer source. So that just shows where uh, the soil system essentially is either A, not as active, or B, um, maybe there's N14 uh, uh, that's more subject to leaching or off-gassing well, out of the system. Well, well, an important issue here is, is one that I cover in my course, and that is that there's a change over time in what the plant is taking up. So let's talk, uh, for example, about a side dress application of labeled nitrogen. And so... In the short term, after that application is made, the labeled fertilizer in will be the main source for crop uptake. Mm -hmm. But as time goes on, that labeled source gets used up or lost 
it doesn't continue to be input into the soil, whereas the soil continues to mineralize unlabeled in. And so fairly soon, the fertilizer is no longer the major source. It's the minor source. And now the soil is the major source. That's how it works. Very interesting. So what happens to the uh, available nitrogen during that short period of time, which maybe you can put a definition on that. Is it one day, one week, one month? But what happens to the regularly mineralizing or, or made available soil nitrogen during that period where the side dress and the labeled N is applied? Well, the, the, the soil continues to mineralize unlabeled N, but it's a matter of dilution and relative proportions. So as the, in the short term, after the fertilizer has been applied, there's enough of the fertilizer in that's present that it will dominate the uptake. But as the fertilizer in is depleted by uptake or by loss, the soil gains the dominance. That's how it works. So one of our common recommendations to folks is when you apply a nitrogen application, we always like to have it indexed. We like to have it stabilized. We like to have it balanced with sulfur and in our Western states with our humic acid product. But I always recommend we really want to target around a 40 pound application rate if possible and never to exceed 80 pounds because of that risk of what you're saying of losing the yeah. naturally occurring nitrogen that we get. Is that now I, I get some complaints on that, you know, because you mean I can't put out 240 in one shot, you know. But uh, would you concur that that's a, a good agronomic recommendation based on the, the observations you've made over time? The answer is absolutely yes. There's something called the law of diminishing returns. And if you want the highest efficiency for uptake, you'll get it with a low end rate. As you increase the end rate, you are setting the stage for losses and for inefficiencies, and you're going to sacrifice that that percent fertilizer and uptake efficiency. So absolutely, the low rate will give you the highest efficiency. Plus, I've always kind of wondered, and then I have no this, but when you put on high rates of fertilizer, it seems like you get that spot response right away, but then there's kind of a lag before the soil system gets back up to speed. If, if, if you will, it kind of knocks it down a little bit, uh, makes it a little lazy. Uh, and then it kind of comes back up to speed. It seems like you get a big burst and it drops down and then it comes back. Is there, is that just anecdotal or have you done any research or know of any work on that? No, 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 that, that could very well be the case. And there are several factors that could contribute to that effect. Sure. One of them is the issue of applying salts. Mm -hmm. So nitrogen cycle processes carried out by microbes are affected by salinity. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a salt buildup from applying a high rate of N fertilizer, that could have an effect on slowing mineralization from the soil. Another factor that would kick in uh, would be in the case of ammoniacal fertilizers, they're going to be nitrified to some degree at least, and that's going to lower the pH, increase the acidity level. And again, the microbes will be affected by that, the ones that mineralize, and so that acidity can slow them down and the soil would provide less in. 
just be and and for our listeners, just every pH range has a different microbial make composition and and activity level depending on the species. There's kind of an optimum pH range for each kind of uh, group or individual yeah. organism. That, so that's we, true, but we can. It's true, but we can generalize pretty safely here, mm-hmm. and uh, have the view that the soil microbe will be most active at somewhere around neutrality, which would be pH 7 or maybe pH 6.5. That's the best place for them to be. But when we apply an ammoniacal end source and nitrification occurs, that's going to produce nitric acid, Mm -hmm. and the pH will go down, and it becomes much less favorable for microbial activity. Correct, because it's a sudden change. You know, you've really disrupted their home, so... Correct. Yes. Excellent. But uh, no, I, I think that's, uh, it, it's pretty fancy. Uh, it's, I mean, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, all these different interactions. And plus, we've seen two in certain crops um, in corn, but in other species in particular, high levels of nitrogen also beget additional, uh, you know, disease related issues that we have to contend with and pest related issues, too. So yes, uh, yes, absolutely. Everything in moderation sounds familiar. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, talk to us a little bit about the oil, uh, Illinois soil in test. Uh, how well that's been adopted? How much of a standard practice that is now? It, it seems to me that it, uh, as far as concerning soil health, that should definitely be in uh, the standard repertoire of what people are are doing to really measure what is my soil's capacity to deliver for my crop. Yes. Um, so that test got its start uh, back some 20, about 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a lot of optimism at the time uh, until <laughs> the realization began to dawn that this test was indicating the soil supplied more in than we had assumed. Again, we were kind of under the mindset of 1.2 at that at that stage. And so with this soil in test, um, in, in the work we did and others as well, it, it looked like we didn't need such high fertilizer N rates. And believe me, that became a a major concern on the part of uh, the fertilizer industry and extension. Uh, It was bad for sales. And so there was some resistance that was pretty intense, actually. And there there has been resistance uh, in in the past many years. But it's the the Illinois Soil Intester, ISNT, does have use and continues to for variable rate and management. That's the niche. And that's what this test brings to the table. That in a field with different soil series, maybe different topographic uh, positions and so forth, soils vary in how much N they can supply. That's something I had to learn 20 years ago. I didn't understand that. But they do vary. And so this Illinois soil end test provides a means to 
quantify that variation and predict it in advance of growing the crop. And so with a high ISNT value, you would be cutting back the N rate. And with a low ISNT value, you would apply more N. That, that, that's the way it was working. And, and it is working that way. Uh, we collaborate with a former student of mine, actually, by the name of Tim Smith. He's the managing agronomist at a company called CropSmith in Farmer City. And uh, they know their business, and they continue to use the ISNT for variable rate N. Oh, yes. And another, another example would be Ken Ferry at the Farm Journal. Sure. Uh, they, they rely on these kind of things. They make variable rate recommendations, and their data are very much like uh, the data we, we were working on in the past that verify that the soil needs to be taken into account to improve fertilizer and uptake efficiency. That, that's just fundamental. If the soil supplies more, there's less need for the fertilizer. So as you look across, you know, the various uh, uh, plots that you've done and, you know, in the uh, throughout across the state and then also in the, the moral plots on kind of the, some of the long term data. Uh, I know in the moral plots, for example, there's there's a high end or excuse me, a high fertilization area and a standard fertilization area that was implemented, you know, later <laughs> on. Uh, um, and I think that was another one of the, the points that you visit with us about there at Ag Emerge is talking about more of the unintended consequences of going from the untreated to, uh, I believe in the 1950s, went to uh, commercial and, and, and commercial fertilizers. And then in the 19, was it 70s? I apologize for not remembering at the top of my head, went to a higher rate of uh, commercial fertilizers yep. and what the effects have been on the soil in those three different areas. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. Uh, the time points of interest would have, would have been 1955 when uh, NPK was first brought into the Morrill plots. And at that time, there was just a single end rate. And then in 1967, when uh, the two-year rotation was converted to corn-soybean, when corn was grown, they added a high NPK treatment, and that one involved a rate of 300 pounds per acre whenever corn was growing. Oh, yeah. And that treatment was brought onto subplots that had previously been, uh, been manured. This was the old MLP treatment of, of Cyril Hopkins, manure, limestone, and rock phosphate. And so they had been manured and we document some of the trends that followed on those high NPK plots. And boy, was there a drop in soil organic matter, both carbon and nitrogen, um, after the high NPK started in 1967. It plummeted. And so what I came to realize was never taught in any course I took. <laughs> and, and, and it came from... Uh, analyzing uh, carbon and nitrogen on the moral plots with those different fertility treatments over time. And so what I came to see, and by the way, I'm the one who did the analyses and great care was taken. And what I realized is that in Hopkins' old system 
of manure, limestone, and rock phosphate with either uh, corn oats or corn oats hay, they had built up the soil organic matter. They had built it up over time. And when the high NPK was applied to those plots, those subplots, it burned down quickly. They lost all the buildup and they lost more besides. That's what we came to see. That was the impact of those high end rates. It burned away the buildup. So, okay, this this opens a whole nother can of worms here. So (laughs) first off, where is it going? Where is is the nitrogen? Where is the carbon and the the nitrogen going? The carbon is being oxidized or converted to CO2 through microbial respiration. Okay, this this relates to a fundamental issue and was one I raised at the Ag Emerge conference, and that is that nitrogen and carbon are implicitly coupled. They have to be for life on Earth. And the reason they are is that that the carbon, the organic carbon, supplies the energy for our metabolism and also for most of the microbes. That's what they're after. They make energy out of the organic carbon. But in order to do that, they have to build the enzymes to, to utilize the carbon. And every enzyme contains nitrogen. That's the essential tie. So when the nitrogen was brought into the moral plots on those high NPK treatments, the microbes were suddenly given a great gift of plenty of N. And when the residues were returned, for example, from corn, now they had all this nitrogen to make all those enzymes and they knew what to do. They set to work burning the carbon to make energy to build their biomass to multiply. And the carbon was was primarily lost as CO2. It was lost into the air. So really, when you build up a large uh, carbon, it's it's most susceptible to the first application of nitrogen, uh, you know, because it's essentially a curve, correct? Over time, if, you know, moving from eight to 7% organic matter is much quicker than moving from seven to six, uh, you know, as an example. Yes, I I would agree with that. The the more you have, the faster it'll burn. Yes. Which, on the other hand, as you're up carbon, it's harder to add carbon as you get higher and higher uh, in your base level carbon within your soil. So the the first, as a farmer, if you're trying to really improve your soil health by focusing on carbon, and you're building, you're building, and building, making that trend, making that from two to three, as long as you don't have too low of an organic matter that's restricting crop yield and ability to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. You know, two to three is easier than from three to four. But going yeah. back from four to three happens really quick. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree with your statement there. Um, so isn't it fascinating we know, that we... Oh, go ahead. I'm just going to add one point there about the... The myriad functions and benefits of organic matter include the storage of water. Mm-hmm. And that's such a critical point. Uh, it, it also has to do with soil aggregation. And that's a really important property for building aeration and drainage. And if you have better aerated soils, a looser soil, 
you have a soil that's more biologically active. It's working better and it's going to supply more nutrients as well as water for both crops and microbes. So really, if, if you, you know, back up from uh, a little bit of a higher altitude view of this, the first step a farmer takes to improve carbon content and, and soil health characteristics of their soil will likely have some of the biggest benefits, you know, and, and keep doing that same management practice over 10 years, your 10 will probably be less beneficial than your 987, just because it's yeah. going to reach a, a plateau of the new reflecting yes. the new management system. However, yes. uh, the, the I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, so on the, on the buildup side, yes, I agree with what you've said. And there I would refer back to a point we raised earlier about the law of diminishing returns. Correct. The greatest benefit, the greatest response will happen at the low end. And that's true of organic matter as well as fertilizer nutrient rates. So, yes, then you head toward a diminishing return and eventually you come to a plateau. Yes. And, and that, that's a that's a great point, how you how you put that together, the law of diminishing returns. And I, I really think if you look at it on the opposite spectrum, if, if you've done great things for soil health and then you decide, you know what, we're going to we're going to put the nitrogen to it this year because prices are great. Or uh, in, in my case, advocate for no tillage, you know, that tillage has tremendous destruction benefits compared to the next one okay so would you say that that's similar too is if we have a really you know a good six percent soil and we over apply nitrogen that effect on year one is greater than what it would be on year five yes i absolutely agree and and here we come back to a point that that would be best summarized by saying that fertilizer nitrogen does not build soils it burns and, and that's that's a hard concept for farmers to, to to sometimes get. You know, they apply these high end rates with the idea that they're they're doing good for their soil, they're doing good for their yields, but they're not helping the soil. That high nitrogen actually depletes the soil. It doesn't and, build; it burns. And because it burns, it also would over time then decrease the amount of soil available free nitrogen because you've reduced the, the carbon content, therefore requiring more nitrogen. So it's either, you either have one of two things hap happening, and it's never static. You are constantly improving your soil, or you're constantly degrading your soil. Is yes. that fair? Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and here we come back to a kind of an analogy that we might make, and that is it's kind of like a drug addiction. You begin applying synthetic nitrogen, and you'll see a yield increase oftentimes. That, that's what happened in the moral plots. But the effect on the soil is not a positive one. You are burning, you are depleting, and over time, you're going to have to be relying more and more on that fertilizer to sustain yield because the soil is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And that's exactly what they've seen in areas like India. They have to keep increasing the end rate just to hold level on production. So, okay, this this now we now we've opened up a couple more lines of questions. One is, how do we break the addiction? And I'd like to visit with you about that. And the second one is, 
realizing that our management practices, uh, beneficial or, or, or negative, but let's focus on the beneficial side, will only get us so far doing those current management practices. Therefore, that requires us to do additional practices to get even better. Uh, which which line would you want to go down first here, you think? Well, I'm thinking back to the ending points I made at Monterey. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of those points, which is more of the short-term approach to this problem, mm-hmm. we, we, we don't want to be over-applying nitrogen fertilizer because, as we've just said, more is not a good thing. It, in fact, promotes burning and depletion. So... Our first view here, and the one actually that we're we're working on right now in several projects, is to do a better job on matching the fertilizer in rate to crop need and response. Okay, Mm -hmm. And, and, and that impacts all kinds of things with issues even beyond nitrogen rate to encompass things like placement and timing and also nitrogen form. We have experiments on all those going in this year. So we want to do a better job to increase uptake efficiency with the simple idea that if more of the fertilizer ends up in the crop, the microbes in the soil will have less to use to burn carbon, and so you'll have less of a burning effect. Uptake efficiency is a very good thing. So that's the short strategy. But then the long one, it, it takes it takes a view that's much more in line with what I heard at Ag Emerge about the need for regenerative agriculture. So there we're talking about more of an integrated approach that brings the animals into the picture, as well as cropping practices, brings in rotations, legumes, and so forth. And in fact, this is the way to build soil organic matter and to improve the fertility of soils. And for me, it's very interesting to to think about that from the standpoint that this is precisely what Cyril Hopkins was preaching here a hundred plus years ago, the Illinois system of permanent fertility. It was based on those kind of practices an integrated system. And so if we want to get away from burning the soil and depleting the resource, we have to go to more diversity. And we can't rely so much on those synthetic inputs because that's 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 like gasoline to a fire. We're burning the soil. We need a more integrated approach and one that brings in carbon as well as nitrogen. That's a very good way to put it. And and really, I see, you know, to talk a little bit about my vision for for our company is the power to grow production system has focused on, you know, what rate we're putting out there, when we're putting out there, how much, you know, and indexing. So constantly looking at that fertilizer use efficiency. And then the other thing is, is irrigation efficiencies and all these things. And that that that's great. And it, it and for for new folks and for the first you know, 10, 15 years that they're with us, that that does amazing things. But there will become a time when that will plateau. You know, the the good improvements that we had, it'll, it'll plateau and, and we'll be there. So really, you know, with Ag Emerge, 
the whole purpose is to try to figure out, like you said, the integrated livestock, the crop rotations, the diversity, the cover crops, how all of these things come together to basically get take, you know, what we're doing with our nutrient system with power to grow to, you know, the next level of re, you know, regenerating and building soil over time. So it is, you're right. It's a two-step approach in, in, in making that happen because, you know, doing the same thing for so long, you'll, you'll, you'll reach a, a plateau and diminishing returns. So fascinating. Yes. And, and it, isn't it interesting that a hundred plus years ago, this was written and, and yeah. I was like, Oh, Hey, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, 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 as I've learned more about that history that, that I once didn't know anything at all about, but, uh, well, there's a lot of history there. I share some of this with my fertility class and, uh, one time we took a little trip down to Southern Illinois where Hopkins had uh, purchased his own farm down there on the poorest ground he could find. And he named that farm Poorland Farm. Hmm. And he applied the Illinois system of permanent fertility to that land. And at one point, uh, after some years of that system, he published uh an experiment station circular, I believe it was. And it was telling about the benefits of imposing his, his system on that land and what it had done for wheat yield. And it tripled wheat yield in a matter of about 10 years. And so here was the evidence that this system worked, that the diversified approach could improve the soil and increase the yield. And yet, what what happened in the years after Hopkins was gone? He, he passed away in 1919. And so what happened was fairly soon there was a drift away from that system over to commercial fertilizers. That's exactly what happened. And so now the high fertilizer rates came into use and the diversified management kind of left the scene. And so we have the fruits of that now, and 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 farmers and and the public as as well are not the better off for it. But it's easy. And it's easy, exactly. Yes, exactly. Commercial right. fertilizer is easy and predictable. Uh, but and you know, you know, know, here's another point. <laughs> Just one more point to add in that direction. You're absolutely right. The easy, the convenience, yes. But another part of this has to do with the economic basis for modern agriculture. And so much of the land in the Midwest and Illinois is cash rented. And so this goes against the idea of land improvement and building organic matter when the tenant may not be farming that ground in the future. How can he possibly afford to build up the soil? That is very true. And crop insurance and government programs, you know, so policy along with economics, Dick has has really pushed our system to where it's at today, correct? You know, you it, are it, so how, right. So how do we but okay, so we know we're doing this for the economic reasons, but we also know and there's a growing body of evidence that we're depleting, uh, decreasing 
we're eroding soil, we're depleting organic matter, and all these negatives, all these unintended consequences of growing bushels. Um, we know that. What what happens? How does this the switch get flipped to go away or to transition back to more um, regenerative type agriculture? What is that magic combination that needs to happen in your mind? And I realize this is out of the scope of, of your research. I'm just asking for, you know, your, your opinion and what you see needs to happen uh, to, to make these things fall into place. Well, as, as I try to respond to that, and you're right, it is out of my domain, but I'm thinking back to the conference in Monterey and what I heard a number of speakers talking about who knew far more about this than I do. And that is that, that you, you have to demonstrate tangible benefits. And, you know, one of those benefits has to do with things like food quality. Uh, we've learned how to grow high yields with the synthetic system. But as we've increased the bushels per acre, I think there's probably been a decrease in the nutrient content and in the quality. And that, that's not even to, to mention issues like glyphosate. So there needs to be tangible evidence that a different system can grow better food and feed. We need that evidence. And it's coming. Uh, the pressure against some of these convenient practices, it's growing. And, and food quality is a bigger concern now than it was 20 years ago. And, and it'll keep increasing. So I think that helps us move in the direction of going to more sustainable and healthier agricultural practices. So we need to get the full value out of what the farmer is growing. So if he is growing more nutrient-dense product, he, he needs to get the premium to do that in order to keep the revenue per acre up. Or if he's doing carbon sequestration, he needs to get carbon credits for what he's doing. Or if he's doing nitrogen retention on his farmland, he needs to get water quality credits. Or if he's keeping uh, soil out of the river system, there needs to be credits for that to bring a, you know, less, let's say it's a less yielding uh, total bushel crop, but it's a higher value crop that he's creating in order to still maintain that cash rent you know, the 300, 400, $500, you know, crazy cash rent stuff uh, to, to maintain that at a, at a lower yield point. Is that, is that what you're, you're, you're saying is we need to look at yeah. other ways to bring income into the acre? Yeah. 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 Pretty much. Um, and so we need to put less emphasis on just gross yield and we need to put more emphasis on the bigger picture of profitability that's so important to, to look at agriculture in a larger context. That, that isn't just a matter of how many bushels did you grow. It, it, it's more about the quality and the, the environmental benefits and the sustainability benefits. Is this an agriculture that's going to last? Very, very good question. And I, I think that as farmers, we all uh, want to be uh, leave the farm better than what it is. And we all believe that what we're doing today is leaving the farm better than what we have. But all of a sudden, when we stumble onto renegades such as yourself that tell us that maybe that isn't that, that maybe that isn't what is happening, then that 
fights uh, creates some internal dissonance and causes us to do something different. So uh, I thank you for that, My opening our eyes that there is that there is other things out there that uh, we need to be doing to do things better, because we we may have thought all along we were doing the best, and all of a sudden realized that oh, over application of nitrogen really is causing a problem. So yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> there you go. So tell me about your future projects uh, that you have going on. Is there any, any secrets you can let out of the, uh, let out into the open right now? Well, we're, we're hoping, if we can get planted actually, we're hoping to finish a couple projects um, as well as start a couple. And the ones we want to finish have to do with timing especially. Um, one of these uh, addresses the impact of what's called Y-drops, mm -hmm. uh, if, if you're familiar with those, where it's a essentially a side dressing technique that places the fertilizer right in the crop row and leaves it on the surface so it doesn't risk root pruning. Well, that has potential, and we hear a lot of a lot of talk that it's it's being widely widely picked up and used and may have many benefits but <laughs> here we go again um, our interest in it is it brings to bear the use of n15 and we're collaborating with cropsmith on this and we want to see what are the hard and what are the hard numbers about the efficiency of uptake for y drops versus other forms of placement or timing so that's one of our big projects we want to finish this year. And another one has to do with uh, application at planting. We've worked with a company called Precision Planning, and they have uh, some innovative application equipment. And uh, that too is being evaluated with N15 to see what is the uptake efficiency from that, that uh, essentially starter fertilizer that's applied. So we want to look at that as well. Then we're looking at uh, a couple new studies. One is relating back to the ISNT with variable rate nitrogen. Um, we're going to be looking with N15 at the efficiency of uptake on soils of contrasting ISNT levels. So that, that'll kind of be a first of its kind. And uh, that's going to be a PhD project for my graduate student Kelsey Gresham. And then we have another another project starting up on comparing uptake efficiency again with N15, but using different fertilizer forms. Mm -hmm. And we're especially interested in the efficiency of uptake with side dressing of nitrate versus ammonium. We think that's a topic that has some potential. Mm -hmm. And especially in combination with the Y drops too. Because, that is uh, true. You have some surface yes. issues with ammoniacal and uh, yes, and we Y drops. Do. So yes, and we don't have <laughs> and we yeah we don't have those issues with nitrate. Correct. So and, and that that would require some some industry changing, but I think that that would uh, certainly be behoove the farmer uh, to be able to have. Uh, you know, more higher nitrate forms available for Y drop applications. So excellent. Yes. Well, wonderful. Um, 
it sounds like you still have uh, plenty going on there and, and, and keeping people actively involved. Uh, would certainly be uh, excited to help out in any way that we can in the future. Uh, we're only sure. an hour away from Monmouth, so if you ever find your way over that way, let me know. But uh, okay, in, anything that uh, you left unsaid in, in Monterey that or things that have changed uh, maybe since January that uh, you want to share with the listeners while we still have you today? Um, my story has not changed from Monterey. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> the points we've made here today go right along that same line. Mm-hmm. So, so our, our focus is on efficiency and it's going to stay there. And we have the view that increasing efficiency is going to work well in many ways, and especially for the grower who can get more return on his fertilizer investment while preventing or at least minimizing the adverse effects on the soil from high fertilizer rates. So really, rather than dealing with the unintended consequences of high nitrogen rates, uh, you're, you're seeking the unintended benefits of fertilizer efficiency. And, and Correct. Part of its pocketbook, part of its carbon, part of its yes. plant health. I mean, there's, yes. there's just, and quantifying all those things to make the case for, you know, your farmers, yes. not only in Illinois, but, you know, nationwide, here's, here's what efficiency can mean for you. That's exactly where we are. I, I really appreciate all of your, your effort and your team and, and how you guys have managed to take a look at the numbers for what they are and not for what we think they are and, and made those changes. And I know I've got uh, a proud uh, alumnus on the line here with us that I'm sure is just greening from ear to ear, uh, excited that her alma mater is leading the way in, in efficiency and rethinking the, the fertilizer application paradigm. Is that fair to say, Kim? I'd say that's a great summary of what I'm thinking over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Mulvaney, I, I uh, really appreciate your time today. Anything you wanted to add, Kim? No, I think that really summarized it. I just appreciate that in light of pushback, you know, that's one of the things that we look at here at Ag Emerge is, as we say, breaking out of that old ag paradigm. And just a few weeks ago, we spoke with Dr. Montgomery, who wrote the book Dirt and talked about how soil has defined civilizations. And he also had to rethink an old paradigm. And so that's what I love is when we're lifelong learners that we don't think I learned that and that's the way it is. And I'm moving on from that, that we are questioning and looking and evaluating. So thanks so much for doing that, Dr. Mulvaney. Yeah, Kim, that's, uh, that's our view too. And, uh, in my, in my view, science has to be based on truth and the data have to define that truth. Mm-hmm. That, that that's how we work mm-hmm. and never never be afraid to ask the question what if absolutely yes <laughs> yes all right yeah it's been a great conversation i i want to thank you so much for your time today you're very welcome i i enjoyed talking with you guys thanks so much <laughs>